If you're joining us for the very first time this morning, I again want to just say welcome to Cornerstone. We're so grateful that you're, you're here. I know the summer is sometimes a time where folks are in and out a little bit more. There are also folks uh, move. I know some of you are, are new to uh, Middle Tennessee. Welcome to you. I hope we're being kind to you uh, in your, your transition. Um, we're grateful that as you're here, that you're worshiping with us this morning. You'll find actually in the pew rack in front of you a visitor registration card. If you wouldn't mind, we would love to have a record of your attendance here together with us today. We'd also just love to be in touch with you. If you'd leave us a little uh, contact information, we'd love to answer any questions about the the church or find out how we could serve or pray for you. You can drop those cards off at the, the tithe boxes in the back of the sanctuary or through this, uh, this door to my left, We've, we'd love to just get to know you uh, a little bit better in the days to come. I want you to know that we work our way through books of the Bible here at Cornerstone. Traditionally, there's sometimes we, we break from, uh, from those, uh, that rhythm of working through uh, books of, of the Bible. Not every church uh, does that. Uh, There's a variety of different ways to be able to approach the text of Scripture, and the the fact of the matter is that that congregations and God's people uh, need uh, different uh, varieties and and changes at at times in in looking, whether it's at a topical series or a vision series or something something like that. We we do believe, however, that the steady diet of working uh, book by book through um, the Scripture is uh, is, is a wonderful and maybe the most helpful way for a congregation to be sure that it's, it's coursing through what, what Paul calls the whole counsel of God. And it also protects the minister uh, and protects the congregation from, from, from the whims of, of a minister who might just choose a text not like the one we're about to read. Right, so if you're visiting with us this morning, you're like, oh, what kind of, what's his deal? What soapbox is he on uh, this morning that he would choose this? No, this is just the next text uh, in our ongoing series in, in Ephesians, and, and that's, that's good for me, and that's good for you, right? There, there, God gives us all of his word, and all of his word is for profit, uh, for as, as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy uh, chapter three, that all of scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This may feel like reproof and correction somewhat today, but know, know this, that that's good. It comes from a loving father who's giving warnings to his, his children. And friends, we need the warnings that are in this text this morning. We, we need it. Even if you think you don't need it, that may be a sign that you you're, most of all need it. Um, but, but we need these warnings as a culture, as a, as a people, maybe as much as the church at Ephesus needed, needed it in the first century. And so I want to encourage you, even before we read this, this text, it would be easy to sort of put up, you know, kind of defenses or, you know, you know why didn't I sleep in this morning? Why did I come today on, on this, and this morning to, to listen to this text? Well, the Lord has something directly in store for you. And so... Let's ask the Holy Spirit together, even before we read this text, just to pray. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear what it is that God has for us today. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we, we are a people who are prone to darkness. Even as we sing, not, um, 
not irregularly around here at Cornerstone, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It is true, that's, there's a waywardness in us, Lord. And we would ask that you would today, no matter what, where every heart is in this room, Lord, you, only you know, would you portion out this particular word and its application perfectly to us today? And would you speak to us as beloved children? We are your beloved children. Would you give us an affection for the things of light, the things which are near and dear to your heart, that more light might be true of us as your people? Come and even now enlighten this word in our hearts that we might receive it and inwardly digest it and might gain all the benefit that you intend from it for each and every one of us right now as we attend to this, your word. Hear this prayer and answer it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners or become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. You know, when you have a number of drivers in your, your home, which is true in the, the Sheridan house, sometimes when you, you get in your car, there's different radio stations that you're car is turned to, and, um, you know, different settings that your seat's in as well, and uh, I got in the car the other day, and, well, it was, a, it was a 1960s station. There was a classic rock station on, and I thought, oh, you've raised your children well. You've raised your, 
Raise your children well. And, and you know what was coming through the speakers was that, that old 1965 Jackie DeShannon song. You know, what the world needs now is love. Can you hear it? Can you hear the melody in your head even now? I'm not going to sing it. Uh, she sings in that, that classic song, what the world needs now is love, right? Sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. Now, I can agree with uh, Jackie DeShannon in, in that regard. Uh, there's certainly uh, too little of love, shall we say, in the world Today, we might say probably at any point uh, in human history post the fall, but, but not knowing exactly what Jackie DeShannon uh, had in mind when she was mentioning love makes the theologian in me want to ask her to define her terms a little bit, because love, as you know, in our own day and time can mean, well, just about any, anything. You remember in the 19. 19- 70s film uh, Love Story, which of course was a, a novel before it was a, it was a film. You, you'll remember that well, often rebutted line, but often quoted line that love means never having to say you're sorry. Oh, I hope not. Oh, I hope not. And we're all sunk if that's the case, friends. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Is that what we mean by, by love? Is that what Paul means here when he refers to us as walking in the love, as beloved children, when he speaks of Christ's uh, love, love here? In fact, he means the exact opposite of that, doesn't he? Or maybe it's love as is surmised by many of us uh, today, uh, culturally speaking, that love means accepting me for who it is that I am. It means of, of approving, of, of all that I decide to do, what, whatever it is that my internal self uh, relays or or desires, uh, defines and identifies me me to be, for you to accept me on the terms that that I determine, that's what true uh, love would be. I hope not. When we look at the Bible, we don't see either one of those uh, definitions, which of course are in some ways in some ways, complimentary, right? Um, love means never having to say you're, you're, you're sorry. It means that you would do nothing wrong as if to hurt someone and you would just perfectly care for them. Oh, boy. Or, or that, that you'd never have to correct someone. Just accept me for who it is that I am. Uh, and, and whatever it is that I decide uh, to do. Now, Jesus says over and over, doesn't he, in the, in the Gospels, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. One of the great evidences of love is a life, a life of commandment keeping, a life where the instructions and the commands of God are to us pathways of love, boundary markers for flourishing, for growth, for the right kind of change. And that's really in many ways what Paul is building on here at this point in Ephesians chapter 5. He's not using the same words as Jesus, but notice how this whole section, we haven't read all of it yet. We'll look at verses 15 through 21 at the, the next week together, but the whole section is 
pulled together with the metaphor of walking. Notice there in verse two, we're called to walk in love. Did you notice in verse eight, he pulls it back in, but he doesn't say love this time. He says, walk in light. If you've got your Bibles open, you might even glance at verse 15 and you'll notice that he uses walk in wisdom. Walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. Now these are not three different paths to walk. They're all one particular path, but they're dimensions of, of the path. They're, they're elements of what does it mean to walk in the love that is ours in Christ. And to walk in the love that is ours in Christ means that we're a people of the light. It means that we walk in the light. It means that we walk in the wisdom of, of God. Now, because Paul is using the metaphor of walk here, I want to use the metaphor of walk with you, and I want to look at this text in just two ways this morning. I want you to see with me the path of darkness, where it begins and where it ends, because Paul is issuing to us a warning in this text. And then I want you to see the path of light, where it begins and, and where it ends, because Paul is inviting us into the delights, into pleasures, well, the, the pleasures of God's love as we walk in the light together. So we're going to start with this path in darkness with, because Paul spends, well, a lot of his time here. In fact, you'll notice as he talks about this path of darkness, he uses a test case. We, we might say that he chose, uh, by looking at Ephesus, what would be one particular sin area that the people of Ephesus might need particular instruction in, might need particular guidance in? And the sin area almost is a test case that you could use in almost any area of sin as we look down this path of darkness is the sin area of sexual immorality. It was a major emphasis in this section of Ephesians and in, as we'll see even a little bit later as he speaks with wives and, and, and with husbands is because it was undoubtedly a struggle in Ephesus and in the church at, at Ephesus. You know, in the way that Nashville is known for music, right? We call it Music City and, and really in many ways if you go downtown Nashville, it'd be hard to mistake the fact that the culture of Nashville is, is, is shaped and formed and and. Well, it reverberates with music. And, and Ephesus, in, in many ways, was a culture that was shaped by the temple of Artemis, the, the, the goddess of fertility, uh, which practices um, uh, informed so much of the culture in Ephesus had to do directly with sexual, illicit sexual behavior, behavior that that would be connected to the worship of, of Artemis, this fertility god. It would have been, so to speak, in the air of, of Ephesus. And so when Paul calls them to walk in, in love, what does he have to do? He also, he pivots here in verse three and he says, I want you to know what love is not. It's not what the world is gonna say is, is love. I wanna distinguish for you, the apostle Paul is saying, the difference between the light of God's love and the darkness of man's lust. That's really what he's going to do in this text. He knows that we need to distinguish between love and, and lust, between the way that, that light reveals itself in love and the way darkness reveals itself in, in lust. And that really is how he's teasing all of this out, beginning in verse 3 and following through 
the text, and I want to summarize it uh, this way for you. And in, in this, for you note takers, here's your moment. If you don't hear anything else, hear this distinction. Paul, from verses 1 to verse 14, is telling us this, that love sacrifices for others in order to please the Heavenly Father. Love sacrifices for others in order to please the Heavenly Father. That, that's how you identify it. That's how you, that's how you can distinguish it in your life. Lust, however, consumes others in order to please yourself. Lust consumes others in order to please oneself. That's what Paul says in this text. He knew that the church in Ephesus needed that kind of distinction because, well, there's, there's sexual activity within the bounds of marriage, and that's good and right and holy. Let's not forget that the God himself, it was his idea after all. He created us as sexual beings. Sexuality is a good thing. It's part of how we image God. It's how we're fruitful and, and, and multiply. We can't actually be who it is that the Lord has called us to be and somehow compartmentalize the, the, the desires and, and the orientations and directions, godly as they should be, towards the reality of sexuality. I don't want you to hear in here. It'd be easy to do, especially if you're maybe even exploring Christianity for the first time this morning. You're thinking to yourself, yes, here I am. And of course, what are these Christians doing? They're talking about how sex is bad. Well, it's not what we're doing at all. Paul is addressing sexual immorality. He's not, he's not addressing sexuality in terms of its confines within marriage. We're going to get to there. Notice over husbands and wives in verses 22 and following, we're, we're going to get to there. He wants to distinguish us between what, what love and light in sexuality looks like and what darkness and lust uh, looks like. And he, he knows that the norms in the Ephesian culture would have given shape to the, to the mind at the heart of these um, newly converted Ephesian Christians. And undoubtedly, many of them were struggling with, with, with sexual uh, illicit desires, even behavior. Why would Paul be speaking to it if it wasn't the case? He doesn't want these things named among them. Don't walk, he says in verse 8, in these unfruitful works of darkness, but instead walk in that which is right and true and pleasing to the Lord. That's why I use the language of pleasing. And so what does Paul do here? He wants you to know how to get to the basis of the struggles with sexuality that we have in our fallen minds and, and hearts and bodies. He wants to tease it out for us. I love how the apostle Paul is so careful here. Notice what he does in verses three and four. He really traces for us the path of, of darkness, the stepping stones of how we move into sexual immorality. And he starts at the end of the road and he kind of retraces his steps down to the, to the beginning. What do I mean? Well, notice where he starts. Let not sexual immorality be named among you. Well, I don't have to tell you this. This is a matter of bodies. This is a matter of actions. This is something that we, we do. This is something that is performed but we all know that sexual immorality doesn't start with bodies. It doesn't, it doesn't start there, does it? Sexual immorality never starts with our bodies. It, it begins a step back. What's the step back with impurity? You know, impurity is a larger category than sexual immorality. It, it begins by dwelling on these things, thinking about these things. It begins 
Paul is saying internal to you, not external to you. That, that, if, that if sexual immorality is the fruit, then impurity is the branch from which that fruit grows. Impurity is the branch through which that fruit grows. That fruit would never grow if it wasn't connected to the impurity of, the, of the, the branch. But then, of course, Paul goes even deeper, if you like. He doesn't want you to think it's just merely in the mind or, or, or in some small, tainted uh, aspect of who it is that you are. Notice how he traces it deeper. He says, not only immorality or impurity not to be named among you, but covetousness must not be named either. Oh, now he's gone under the soil. Now he's gone, you see, to the, to the root of the, of the issue. Now, he's gone to the Ten Commandments, hasn't he? In fact, it's the tenth of the commandments, isn't it? Thou shalt not covet. It's the one that we, well, it's the one we love the most, isn't it? Oh no, it's never the one we love the most. It, Paul even tells us that he was doing okay with the commandments till he got to number 10. He mentions in Romans. But then when I read thou shalt not covet, I then went, oh, oh no. I saw it everywhere in, in my life. Why, why is the Tenth Commandment mentioned here, well, the Tenth Commandment is, in some sense, unique among the commandments. Why is, well, why do I say that? Well, murder is something you can actually see and know if it's happened, stealing, right? Lying can be found uh, out, disobedience to parents. I can, I can vouch to that. It can be seen. It, it can be, you can, you can witness it. Um, all of the others have demonstration to them. And then, then it's like Moses gets to the end. Of course, he's following along with God's revelation. He gets to the end and he says, oh yeah, by the way, thou shalt not covet. And you go, oh boy, I've got to rethink the whole list now. You mean that the commandments are not just a matter of behavior, they're a, they're a matter of desire. They're a matter of my, my heart. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Before sexual immorality ever, ever happens, it's, there, there's been an impurity of mind. There's been a covetousness of, of heart. In, in fact, some argue that Paul is talking about two different subjects here, and it's possible he could be talking about greed. Some of your translations may actually say greed. It could be material possessions that he's speaking of here. But I think if you're looking at the train of thought here, I side with the scholars who suggest that he's actually tracing this one particular sin to its root. And he's not speaking so much about materialism as he speaks of coveting, but he's speaking about coveting someone else's body. Right? Isn't that where it starts, isn't it? Isn't that what lust is? It's coveting someone else's its body. Well, and you say to yourself, well, isn't that going a little far? I don't think so. I think that's what Moses said. Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his maidservant or his manservant. Sounds familiar to what Jesus' words were, doesn't it? In Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with Covetousness with lustful intent, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yeah, Paul, you see, he's going all the way down to the center of our being, and he wants us to know that if, if you're, you know, if you're battling with sexual immorality, and, and, and to be honest, friends, we all at various levels likely are in some way, shape, or form, and if we, if we may not feel it in the fierceness of the battle now, it, it might come later, just there might be an opportunity that avails itself, that business trip, 
that, that alone before the computer screen, the various weak points in your, your, your life. Paul, Paul is saying here, he wants you to know that it's not just a matter of saying no to the behavior. You've got to get to the root of the thing. You've got to get to the desires of, of the heart. He actually goes so deep. And notice verse eight, as he speaks about our lives previous to Christ, he doesn't say, you were in darkness at that time. Notice how strong he says it in verse eight. You were darkness. Oh my. You, you were darkness. You were, you were in the kingdom of darkness. You were under the reign and the power of sin. Yes, as believers in Christ, you've been transferred to the kingdom of light and life. That is true. But isn't it true that remaining sin is still within us? We haven't yet been fully sanctified. This is why Paul challenges us in Romans chapter seven and he says to us, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, if he says to you, don't let sin reign, R-E-I-G-N, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Why would he challenge you in that way and tell you and command you in that way if it, if it were not possible for you to let it? And maybe some of us in this room know the snare of that very reality right now. Paul wants us to know that over time, what this actually happens in our hearts and our lives and what it teaches us about what's really going on with us is that we're idolaters. Did you see the language of verse five? Oh yeah, he keeps going deeper. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, which is idolatry. Well, look at what he did. He went to commandment one. He jumped from commandment 10 all the way to commandment number, number one. And he, and he says to us that that which your heart is ravenous for, that which your heart wants more than anything else, that which you give into with regards to the internal operations and drives of your being is actually that which you're serving and giving your life to, which is the definition of an idol. It's the definition of an, of an idol, which is idolatry. Now, that would have rung, of course, in the Ephesian church mind very well. I mean, probably with an eye shot was the, you know, the, the vision of the temple of Artemis, one of the great seven wonders of the world. And so as Paul is writing this letter to them, they're in the shadow of the temple of, of Artemis. They would have they would have known that as they read the letter, there was illicit sexual behavior happening within that temple probably right as they read it. And this would have been the norms of their, their culture. This would have been part of the pressures of their, their culture, which is why the more things change, the more they stay the same. We don't have the Temple of Artemis to dot the landscape in, in Nashville, but we're fools to think that we're not serving the God of sex in our day and time. Friends, we're fools if we think that. We're fools to think that it's not impacting us. It's not desensitizing us. Did you notice here that Paul doesn't say, don't commit sexual immorality, don't have, don't do it. Let it not be named among you. That's powerful. That's strong. The language could be, don't let there be a hint of. Don't let there be a hint of this. You know, one of the kindnesses of our God, isn't it, that is that he, he issues to us warnings. 
he issues to us these kind of direct instructions. You don't want someone pandering to you, do you? You don't want a people-pleasing God, someone who's just gonna tell you the things that you want, do you? You want a God who's gonna speak to you in a way that's good for you, out of love for you, don't you? Do you want a parent who's just gonna say, you know, children, whatever it is you wanna do, do, do that. Oh, God, save us from those kind of parents. God, save us from those kind of parents. Children don't, by default, right, go in the right direction. We've made this note a couple of times. You ever notice that you don't have to train your children to sin? That it it sort of comes with the territory? But you do have to train them in righteousness? Have you noticed this? It's because you were darkness. There's a remaining sin. There's an inclination of the soul. That that the work of the Holy Spirit is beginning to bring more of light. And how does the Lord do that? Well, he does that through his means of grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He uses parents, disciples. He uses the church as a means to accomplish that. He wants us to know, friends, that if we mess with sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and idolatry, that it has consequences. He doesn't just want us to know where it begins and the path that we walk. He wants us to know actually the end of it. Would you look at verse verse, um, five and and verse six in, in our text? Notice what he says. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You would sort of like him not to say it that firmly, wouldn't you? It makes you shiver just a little bit. Verse 6, let no one dis- deceive you of empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Uh, interestingly, that, that word in verse 6 is actually in the present. The wrath of God comes now. He's not speaking of the future in verse 6. Now, he is speaking of the future in verse 5. He's saying the outcome of a life that's given over to sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, which is idolatry, full on, those who are full idolaters, totally committed, building their lives on this. The outcome is no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. He's making it very clear to us, isn't he? And he wants you to know that that's not the reality of that judgment and the reality of that wrath actually begins to, well, so, so to speak, the chickens start coming home to roost before eternity. Oh, you know this, right? You know that when you've been caught in, in sin, no matter what sin it is, it might be this one, it might be, might be another one where, well, you just want more and more and more of that thing. It might be food. It might, it might be drink, it might be rest and comforts. You want more in, and more of that thing and you, you just, you brainstorm, you daydream about how you can get more and more of that thing. You try to do enough just to be able to get back to that thing and, that, and the more you need of that thing, the more, well, the more you need of that thing. The more you need of that thing, the more you need of that thing. And then before you know it, your, your heart is so covetous, you're, you're circling over time and time again that the thing that you're actually after is no longer even enjoyable to you anymore. That your heart is so restless, it has no ability to even enjoy the thing. One of the most shocking texts, isn't it, is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 19, where uh, Koheleth, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, possibly Solomon, if it is Solomon, and I think it probably is, if it is Solomon, he knew something about pleasure. He knew something about sexuality and about riches. And he says to us, 
Not only does God give good things to his people, God gives his people the ability to enjoy those good things. And he removes that ability too. Oh, did you think you were in control of that? Oh, the Lord's in control of that. And it could be that that the reason that your own soul is somewhat inoculated and numbed and not, not alive to the joy of the Lord is that it's been, well, it's been gluttonied on the things of the world. Uh, you, you know, are you noticing in some area of your life even right now that there's, it's taking more and more to satisfy you? Is it, is it a new car? Is it a new house? Is it a new spouse? What is it? We live, we live in a place where that's constantly the case, isn't it? I mean, what every advertisement is telling you this. And... Um, well, see, where do, you, where do you and I live? Oh, yes, in Williamson County, don't we? It doesn't matter where you look. Somebody's got more than you. And it doesn't matter how much you're going to get. Someone's going to have more than you. Are you on that race? Are you on that path? It's a path of darkness, you see. You, you know it in your soul, don't you? You know, you remember how you used to be satisfied with very simple things. And now it takes so much. And it registers even littler than it used to in your soul. Paul is warning us, isn't he? He's warning us here. He's warning us not because he's trying to make us feel terrible. It's because he's trying in love to save us and sanctify us. He doesn't want you buying a bill of goods. Don't listen to the empty words. Don't be deceived, he says. People all around you are going to say, give in to your fantasies. You deserve it. Go get the thing. Spend that extra money on you. Build. Buy. You can find that message everywhere, you see. And when you look at the scripture... Maybe it's not raising our standard of living or raising our standard of comfort, but it's as as Randy Alcorn said years ago, it's raising our standard of giving, raising our standard of sacrifice. The joy that comes in that is qualitatively different, isn't it? Now, I'm sure some of you, as you read verse 5, even as as I noted, you probably would like him to say this a little different. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, which is idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And some of us are saying to ourselves, hmm. does that mean one instance of impurity, covetousness, of sexual immorality? Two? Does that mean two? Two instances? What about three? How, does he, how many does he mean to, to get to this, you have no inheritance in the, in the kingdom of God. Didn't Paul say back in chapter 1 that we were assured of the Holy Spirit and a future inheritance uh, by, by virtue of the down payment of the Spirit in our own uh, soul? It's ours in Christ Jesus. We hadn't fully gotten possession of it now, but the Holy Spirit is a down payment 
for us. It's meant to be our assurance. Now is Paul sort of like, yeah, I, I overstated things a bit back in chapter one. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna step that back just a little bit and, and issue now uh, something different than, than what I said. You know, a man, a man makes mistakes, a man, a man grows. And so now I'm at chapter five and no, that's not what he's doing at all. It is Paul saying you're saved by grace, but in order to keep yourself saved, you, you better in every way be sexually upright. No, Paul is not uh, saying that. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul is instead saying this. Our works do not save us. Our works do not keep us saved, but our works rather are evidence that we are truly saved. Our works are evidence. They're the manifestation. They're the fruit in that part of the language of the text. They're the fruit that we have a real and vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a stumble. It's not a sin here and there and even for a season of time where we're giving in to the, to the, to the matters of worldliness, to the things of the, of the world. It's not a quota or a quotient that he's looking at. It's a life of repentance he's calling us into. He's asking you today to register in your own sort. Are you even grieved by these things? Do you want these things to change? Are you saying no? Are you putting in whatever parameters are needed to help you say no? Are you putting forth the, the effort in sanctification? It's going to require work. Yes. I know God must do it. We said that last week. We spent a long time on it last week. We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? That's our responsibility. It's God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But if God is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, we will be, a consequence of the work of God within us is that we will be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not the perfection of our life, but you know what we say here at Cornerstone, the direction of our life. When we stumble, and we will stumble, won't we? We want to stumble forward. We want to get back up in repentance and run to, to Christ and, and grow more into his likeness. We don't want to wallow. We, we don't want to give up. We don't want to sit on the sidelines. We're running a race that is set before us, knowing that Jesus began as the author, and he is the perfecter of that race. That's the spirit we want to see in the lives of God's people. You see, this is the path of darkness, but he also tells us here, listen, there's an antidote. And I'll do this briefly. We'll come back next week. We've got more to say. And I want to start just with this, the beginning place of the path of light. Do you catch this in verse four? Instead of filthy, foolish talk and crude joking, isn't that how often impurity and sexual immorality begin? The water cooler talk right? The, the gym talk, the girls weekend talk, right? It starts by joking and laughing about sacred things, good things, godly things, and opening up a path to get your mind thinking impure. Isn't that, isn't that often? I go, instead of all of that, let those things not be named among you. He says, what does he say? Let there be Thanksgiving. 
Let me ask you something. Has someone ever committed sexual immorality full of thanksgiving for their spouse? Fully content in the wife of their youth? What's Paul doing here? Well, he's addressing the covetous heart. He's addressing the idolatrous heart. Do you, do you know how radically different the world looks when you're thankful? You know that when you get up in the, in the, in the morning and you're, you're always like, oh, I need more money, I need more time, I, I need more control, I need more X, Y, and Z. And your blood pressure just keeps going up, and, and you're after all these things, you're running all day long in these things, right? You know that feeling. And then you know it's like to like have your feet hit the ground, and you say, Lord, thank you for life. You gave me another day. It's a gift from your hand. You're drinking your coffee. Lord, this is amazing. Lord, the, the, the fact that you would create a holy being called coffee and it would have properties of helping me wake up in the morning and go about my day that my family won't hate me for being grumpy. And, and this is just a great kindness of you, right? Rather than saying, oh, you mean it's not, it's not, it's not gourmet, it's Folgers? Good grief. <laughs> right? Right? That's a different heart, isn't it? That's a really different heart. What is Paul doing? He's saying... All of this is rerouted when we're thankful. The path of light begins with thanksgiving. The light grows with path of thanksgiving. Do you just find that the world is brighter when you're thankful? The, the, light, the, the world is lighter. The loads are lighter when you're thankful. It just sort of diffuses throughout your, your life and exposes all the, the aspects of, of darkness. And it actually becomes, I think, what Paul is saying here, a real witness a real witness for Christ in the world. Do you know that one of the, I think two, well, let's say two, two of the ways that we could probably be a living witness for Christ in our own day and time is through our commitment to sexual purity as God's people in our own day and time and a commitment to be thankful. There are probably two things that this world is lacking in, well, in spades, isn't it? And, and those commitments, you know where they come from? Well, they come from, they come from Christ. That's where they come from. You know, you're not just going to like drum those things up, are you? You know, some of us are going to try. Some of us in our flesh are going to try. But no, those come actually when Christ shines on you. Did you see how this text ended? He says, awake, O sleeper. You see, some of us are inoculated. Some of us have been lulled to sleep in our worldliness. He says, awake, O sleeper. I want Christ to shine on you. I want the beauty and the brightness of the light of Christ. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. I want it to shine on you. When people see you sitting on a hill that can't be hidden, that they might see your good works and glorify God as in heaven. I want them to see you. I want you to bear witness for me in the world. Discern what is pleasing to me, that which is good and right and true. Walk in love and in light. That's what I call you to. Because Jesus, your Savior, he took on all of those works of darkness on the cross for you. He's nailed them to the cross. You bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He nailed them to the cross. They're, they're no more. He rose again from the dead. Let him rise. He's overcome sin and death. His spirit that raised him from the dead is in you. Walk as children of the light. 
Walk as children of the light. As your Savior, the Lord Jesus, is the Savior of the light. Cornerstone, I pray that in days to come, we'll learn even more deeply how the work of this light and this life makes a difference not only in our unity as a congregation, our growth as a congregation, but on what it means to be witness bearers of the light in the world all around us. Jesus has set you apart for life right now in this generation. He has a calling on your life. He has gifted you and equipped you. He's given you his spirit. You have all that you need. Every blessing of the heavenly places is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's walk in the light of Christ together. And let him bear his beautiful fruit in and through us. Father in heaven, we pray for that reality to be true today, increasingly, in the life of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. We know the way that this is to be answered in our lives is completely and wholly up to you. We can't control outcomes, but we can commit to holiness and righteousness and leave the fruit to be born through the power of your spirit. Would you, Lord, even today on those in the midst of, of this service who are trapped and ensnared in sexual addiction and purity and covetousness at every level, those of us who are hardened in idolatry and we don't even know it, we've never known the love of Christ and, and the light that comes in him, Lord, today might it be the day of salvation. But Lord, for those who have lost their way and continue to push forward lost, stop them in their tracks right now. And Jesus, rise and shine on them and steer them back to the narrow way that is you, the way that is life and light. Let them know your love. You're not here to shame them into obedience. You're here to love them into obedience because you love them and you know what they've been made for and the end for which you have purchased them. Lord Jesus, come and do this work by your spirit, we pray. We are needy of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.